The Beauty of the World is our new mini-series that focuses on world and regional beauty concepts. In each episode, we'll be joined by a key opinion leader to discuss local attitudes to beauty, cultural tastes, and explore how the key aesthetic markets around the world differ. We'll also learn how to approach, respect, and treat different skin tones and racial features, celebrating the amazing diversity of our faces and skin. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. How was your Christmas as older? What did you get up to? Um, special, different. Because normally our whole family goes to Platenburg Bay. We've got a beach house there. Um, but our beaches have been closed. So my husband and I decided just to stay. So um, our sons um, are there now. But it's um, I'd rather be locked down at home than at a beach where I can't walk. So, But it was... Um, Different, but yet a lot of um, joy in the moment and deeply meaningful, despite it being not quite the usual. Mm. And there will be other times too. How was yours? Well, we're still going. We're still we're still in the break. Jake and I are having a little bit of downtime, which is great. It's been a, a trying year for everyone around the world, I think. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's been nice to have a bit of downtime. It, I mean, it's just been a crazy year in so many ways, but the final six months has been mad busy it, from our perspective. And so, yeah, it's nice to just sort of put my feet up and just do kidding stuff and go to the zoo and fun things. <laughs> so um, I guess just to orientate the listeners, um, now do you want me to call you, uh, is that okay if I call you Isolde? Isolde, Isolde okay. Because I've got the last name and I know I've had it pronounced before, but I don't want to butcher it on air. So I'll just call you Isolde. Um, <laughs> so listeners um, can go back to episode 83 where we had our first discussion with you and people can hear all about you and your amazing journey and what you do. But I guess just for the just for the benefit of this podcast, could you just orientate the listeners with, with who you are and where you're from and, you know, what area of medicine you're in? I know you're a dermatologist, but um, just a little bit about yourself would be great. So I'm Isolde. I live um, near the foot of Table Mountain, and I'm, I'm director of a cosmetic dermatology center with one colleague who was a classmate of mine since first year pre-graduate training. My... Um, Road into aesthetics is actually interesting. It was a gradual one initially. In my last year of specializing, I won a prize to go to the World Congress of Dermatology in Vancouver, where I am learned, I went to a um, symposium on treating of the age, treatment of the aging face. And I remember walking around there thinking that I'm never going to do this because everybody is um, moon-faced and expressionless, and I, I, I can't do this to people. So this is not for me. And shortly after that, um, when I was back home, Kundabula came to South Africa for a congress. I was asked to um, introduce him. And when I saw the very respectful, pragmatic, academic way in which he did things, I thought, well, maybe I can do this. So I started sort of um, injecting Botox, but I had no local um, teachers, no local support because, I mean, actually, aesthetic medicine is a very new um, speciality in our country in many ways. And I was doing it, I mean, I went to Kun for um, a week by own volition. I um, It's very expensive for us to travel overseas. I used to read and think who I thought was good and, and then go to a congress, try and decide who should I try and visit. And in the same way, I ended up with Arthur Swift and um, Niall Solish 
and um, Kent Remington in Canada. But we started the Dermatology Center in 2010. And at that stage, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to go into aesthetics at all. We were building this new center and I had to decide, do I want to do Mohs surgery or do I want to do aesthetic medicine? And I um, wasn't at all convinced regarding aesthetic medicine because there was no, there was sort of no guidelines. I was looking for, for structure for an academic basis. And then by remote chance, I ended up at MWC in the Elegant Symposium where I heard Mauricio de Mayo speak for the first time and also where Arthur Swift for the very first time presented his seven features of true facial beauty. And it just blew me away. And I thought, ha, oh, there's method, there's beauty. Um, and that specific Congress actually inspired me to, you know, to um, take the route of aesthetic medicine. And with time, my um, practice has moved over to, well, we've got a center, dermatology center, but I would say I do about one third complex dermatology. I've got a problem clinic once a week with the head of dermatology from Tigerberg Hospital, but two thirds now I would say is acidic um, medicine, injectables. My colleague does the energy-based devices. I do the injectables. But um, I do see clinical dermatology, especially things like melasma, acne, rosacea, um, mole mapping every single day of my working life too. That was a long answer to a short question. <laughs> well, that was great. That was actually quite succinct. And tell us very briefly about your role as a key opinion leader in injectables and as an educator. Well, um, I can't speak for the key opinion leader. It's something, designated term that gets bestowed upon you by people who've decided I can't. But um, I think especially because I grew up in a country with no local guidance or support, it's just been incredibly important to me um, to have structure and to help people um, work within structure. It was a very, very, very lonely road for me for 15 years. I had, didn't have the support or the backing of my of my peers. At our monthly journal club meetings, um, it was about six or seven years ago for the very first time that I actually had the guts to read an aesthetic article. And then everybody was um, full of questions. But um, I, I had ridicule. I got the quizzical brow, the academic quizzical brow, not just another quizzical brow. Um, and it was very important for me just to help create credibility and method and structure. Uh, currently, we've got the most incredible head of department at Dermatology. And since 2013, we've been working together. So I've got an honorary consultants post at the university and I try and teach the registrars what I can. They rotate through our practice and we're trying to teach them. I'm actually involved in two universities locally now. So I think maybe because I grew up without and I'm sort of a little bit the head girl, I want method and structure and I had none locally. Um, it's been important for me to try and create some of that back home and it sort of, over, it sort of um, overflowed across our country's borders. Mm. I was just... Um when you said about um, people not taking aesthetics seriously, that's kind of interesting when dermatology, I guess, for a lot of, a lot of, a, a large extent is about how your skin looks. I know there's things like obviously skin carrots and so on, which are, you know, more functional and health related issues. But if you've got like a cherry anginoma or something like a scar or, or something that it's still aesthetics, right? So why that sort of divide or not taking that side seriously when, you know, a lot of dermatology is how this even is, is about how the skin looks in general. Well, I'll tell you exactly. So in our country, for a population of 60 million people, there are 150 dermatologists in this country. Wow. Wow. They are incredibly hard to come by posts. Um, so we specialize for four years. You need um, credentials before you can get the post. So we are in um, very high demand. There just aren't enough of us to go around. And because it doesn't, isn't seen as a sort of um, 
a crucial speciality by the powers that be in our country. There just aren't enough posts. So I think in that regard, people, you know, the, the heads of department think that we should be treating um, HIV and um, cutaneous TB and all best melanoma incidents in the world. So there's a lot of work for us in other ways. So unless you've got the um, the commitment, the, the curriculum is also very full. It's a highly academic speciality. Mm-hmm. So the curriculum is full. And every time by our societies, we've sort of tried to offer training to people whilst they're specializing. We've been battered down by the um, by the hierarchy because there just isn't enough time in the curriculum. So what I've been doing is giving the Friday afternoons in my practice, allowing them, if the heads of departments are willing, to move through and doing it in, in my spare time and in their off time. That's brilliant, Azolda. Well done. And the reason we got you involved with this podcast was, well, not only because you were so great on, on episode 83, but you told us that you had a particular interest in African beauty and that you were actually going to embark on a PhD on this originally back in the past. So Tell us about you know your background into that. So oh, interesting. It happened also serendipitously as these things do. I was actually at a wonderful um, elegant event in 2016 in London on ethnicities. And I remember sitting in that hall at the beginning and the end, and they had this beautiful projection of countries around the world. Week was about ethnicities. Um, and I sat there that week. They had the Caucasian, the Asian and Afro-American, and I sat there that week thinking, where is my continent? Yeah. And it was actually laughable because I'm this white face from Africa thinking, where is my continent? Because although Afro-American gets discussed, Africa doesn't. And not one African patient was treated that, 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 um, that week. So there really is a paucity of um, information and I think maybe too little light shone upon it. And sort of that started my journey and I remember coming home thinking they were speaking about beauty concepts so I thought well what is African beauty concept I don't know and with the residents at university I embarked on a little sort of informal mini trial we sort of spoke to 120 patients and wherever I saw them in the clinic at the university in the um I I went to them and said so you've got beautiful and different features so um where do you come from and then um, what do you perceive to be beauty for you, for whichever ethnicity you are? And then I also asked them, so would you change anything in your face if you could? What I learned in those weeks, it blew me away. I felt I was walking above the ground because the one after the other person told me, never mind which, what sort of um, racial group, what religion, what political view, they so often told me, no, I love my face. God made me this way. And it blew my mind. I just realized there is a higher form of contentment, which I found beautiful. And when I, the, the, those who could say what they found what they deemed beautiful, um, more than half didn't know. They had no idea. The ones who did know, the majority thought it was sort of skin quality. Yes. And then when I asked them, so would you change something about your face? Nobody other than one, which I'll explain, wanted to change their features. They just wanted to look like they looked when they were younger, mm-hmm. which I found beautiful too. There was just a happiness. If you compare this to Asian um, patients who've got very strict beauty ideals, who believe you know, they do face reading, hollow temples is a bad marriage, that, that they, they read things in the face. The African um, people in my kind of setup, um, 
they didn't have that kind of concept. The only young patient who wanted things changed because she wanted things changed was a first-year university student who had a very mixed lineage with a um, Portuguese grandmother, a German grandfather, a Hrikwa father, very mixed, um, and a Chinese grandmother too on the one side. And the only thing this girl didn't want in her face were actually her eyes because she thought the eyes looked um, Chinese and she didn't want a Chinese look. I mean, it was fascinating. So interestingly, we've got 11 different languages and different groups in our country. So I asked her, well, what do you, um, if you must write your name on a form, we get asked, what is your race, your ethnicity? What do you write? Because we've got um, a mixed, what they call a mixed race around where I live in Cape Town. And this girl told me she writes African. And I thought that was so beautiful. So um, it is a um, kaleidoscope of um, beauty concepts, of colors, of structures, which fascinates me. It's interesting um, that you were sort of provoked to, to look into things after an Allegan event. You know, and one of the reasons why I came up with this concept and I sort of threw some ideas around with David is that as an injector, exactly like you said, we're taught to you know, treat a standard Caucasian face um, some principles about Asian patients, maybe Middle Eastern patients, but no one has ever taught me about black or African features uh, from an injectable perspective. Um, certainly not South American or you know multiple other cultures. So that's part of this um, you know mini series, and hopefully people don't feel like we're talking in stereotypes. But well, it's you know, the opposite, have- really. I mean, the fact that we haven't addressed those things up until now is almost doing a disservice because we're living in, especially in Australia, we've got such a multicultural society with people from all different parts of the world. Yeah. Um, we're a young country with, you know, a lot of immigration. So I think as Jake was saying, it's the opposite. We feel um, after, you know, Jake came to, came to me with the idea was that we would be doing our listeners a disservice if we didn't go down this path. Yeah. Some questions might sound a little bit direct occasionally, but it's because we want to get to the core of the topic. You know, what do people want in their yeah. own country or region? Yeah, and what I think we all mean well, and it's just it's yeah. I find it actually liberating to be able to speak about these things because a a huge taboo all over the world is colorism, but but it's about a lot more than skin color. Where my one of my big um, inspirations is Angelica Daz. I don't know whether you know about her, but it's a lot more than just the color. It's it's there are structural differences too. Do you know Angelica Daz? No. I stumbled upon her when I started reading about the African beauty. She's an amazing woman. She's Brazilian. And she comes from what she calls, she's a photographer, comes from a very um, multicolored family. She's got a grandfather she calls the color of chocolate. And her one grandmother has got a pale skin, which she calls like a sort of pancake color. She's coffee colored. And then she married a husband who looks like a strawberry if he's in the sun for five minutes. Mm-hmm. And she never worried about color because she grew up with color. Um, until she got married and she started wondering, what are our children going to look like in Brazil, which was the last country where slavery was actually abolished? And she decided to start changing the world one photograph at a time. So she took photographs of people's faces and then took the um, the Pantone color of the central part of the nose and then made the background of the face in that Pantone color. And for years, she's been photographing people doing massive installations outside the World Economic Forum in art galleries. Um, And in all these years, she says she's never come across black or white. Everything is in color. She's actually now started going to schools. They live in in Spain now, I think, 
going to schools where they make the children paint and choose the color of the background of their face. So um, we shouldn't be seeing in black and white. We should be looking in color. There's such a beauty in that for me. So that is the one thing. Um, but structurally, faces differ, as, as you know. And um, that is the fascinating part because they all need to be approached in a different way, especially when you're doing injectables. And I was caught out so often in the first years until sort of little pennies started dropping. Yeah, absolutely. Now, just to, I guess, to get into the, the core of the topic, I'm just going to throw some stats at the listeners because, um, you know, just to sort of ground people in this conversation. So obviously Africa, multi-multi-ethnic, there's around 3,000 ethnic groups apparently and over 2,000 languages and there's around 1.3 billion people. So, you know, you must encounter so many people from so many countries, so many uh, like you said, socioeconomic backgrounds, religions, political um, affiliations, and so on. So it, it's a really fascinating thing. And I think it's sort of doing a bit of a disservice to say we're going to talk about Africa because we can't really do that. Um, so, yeah. So let, let's talk <laughs> with South Africa. That would be that would be good because that's obviously your hometown. So what, what's the, the the ethnic makeup of the patients that you see as older? Because you're Afrikaans origin. Yeah. So, well, our country has 11 um, ethnic groups, 11 official languages, which is why we call the Rainbow Nation. So around where I am, we see um, the Cape Malay, what they call the Cape Malays, which are of Malay origin. When our country started, other than the indigenous people, First Nations, um, we were colonized by the Dutch. There was a Dutch East India Company, which came here, and the Germans, the French, and yeah, and the Portuguese, actually. So we are a very mixed heritage nation. So um, around where I work in the hospital, Tigerberg Hospital, we see what they used to call um, the Cape Coloured, whose features are more Caucasian, actually, and mm -hmm. Malaysian. Um, also the Kosa, which are different, and some Zulu. Um, in KwaZulu-Natal, they see more of the Zulus. In Gauteng, they see more of the Pedes. And there's more and more migration. So one sees more and more of the mix. But it, it's, it's a very... Um, wonderfully and richly varied um, group that we see. So I would say in my practice, um, I, don't, I don't see um, as many, um, one shouldn't say black because black doesn't exist, but the majority of my patients are Corsa and the, um, the, the um, Cape Malay and what used to be called colored. I hope these terms aren't wrong, but that is um, how it is. Mm -hmm. And then the larger majority still um, Caucasian. I know, and we've got a huge country, Johannesburg is like, if we'd been in Europe, we would have been different countries, mm -hmm. Johannesburg and, you know, um, Gauteng and us. There they see more of the of the black patients and a far more um, well-to-do, financially um, strong group, which is actually more, um, currently more active with, with aesthetic treatments than Cape Town regarding injectables. I can tell you that just about um, all the darker skin patients that we see, we see droves of asthma for skin quality. We see myriads of patients. That's, that is why they originally come and then they become introduced to the possibility of other treatments too. Mm. I can also tell you actually, it's, it's, um, there's a 60% um, in our country, 61% awareness of aesthetic procedures. About 35% of those consider aesthetic treatments and only 25% go over to treatment. And the biggest reason for that being um, lack of education. And we are hampered because the, the companies aren't allowed to educate or aren't allowed to collect data of that kind. So it's up to the doctors to educate 
the patients and it doesn't um, doesn't always um, get done in the way that it could. So I know some of the big companies are have contracted um, professional companies as of next year to start collating adequate data. Mm. Have you seen the the demographic of your patient changing over the last sort of five to 10 years in terms of people from different parts of the country, different ethnicities or different regions starting to want to undergo cosmetic treatments or has it been sort of fairly static throughout your career? No, there's a, there's a huge change. Mm. Regarding um, ethnicity, also gender, huh? more yeah. and more males. I think that's universal, but yeah. but for a fact, yeah. And I must say, yeah. Well, maybe I've got selection bias because I work closely with the um with the hospital with the academic department, and my passion is actually the treatment of facial palsy, none of whom can normally um pay for treatments. So just about all my facial palsies, which I um, treat pro bono, come from the hospital setting, and they are obviously also um, from from those kind of backgrounds. Mm. And what do you think's dri- driven that change or that that change in demographic? Has it been social media? Has it been, you know, the way that your your nation has changed over the years with things like apartheid? Do you think that it's yeah. just been a progression of time, or are there other factors? Well, I think it's multifactorial. But social media is playing a huge role. It's interesting, even regarding the beauty concept. So beauty concept is a fascinating topic. If you take it across Africa, I'll give you some examples. But I know there's been a publication from our country two, three years ago where they um, looked at the beauty concept. And normally in Africa, it's been um, accepted that what's beautiful is good. Beauty isn't beauty for beauty's sake. It must be functional and relational. But with the onset of social media in our country, there's been a drive from a, a, a higher body mass, normally, you know, more um, higher body mass index was thought of as healthy. Um, there's been a drive towards thinner, um, thinner look, and they want a more yellowish skin tint, which has been found now versus the darker skin tint in our country. Mm-hmm. In contrast to the rest of Africa, where you know being well fed is 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 good. In a country like Mauritania, in um, North Western Africa. I mean, they force feed the girls. They, 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 I don't know whether you've ever read about this. From the age of 11, they feed them huge meals because the fatter they are, the more easier they get a husband because right. that's considered beautiful. And, and the, a fatter woman is considered more comfortable to have sex with. So they want them fatter, actually. <laughs> they think they think these skinny models are horrible. So there's this huge diversity um, you know, in, in Africa and also in our country. But for a fact, the, the move is now towards thinner, more slender body frame and a, um, a paler, more yellowish skin tone. Oh, so that's where the more cushion for the pushing came from. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're all friends here. It's true. <laughs> Africa's interesting. I mean, yeah, we, we also think, you know, did you know, for instance, in Northern Africa, uh, the beauty concepts fascinate me. There's a, there's a, um, the um, Wadabi um, ethnicity in Northern Africa. They are sort of nomads. They have a male beauty contest once a year. Have you ever read about those? Mm-hmm. Isn't this the Berbers and they try to impress the women? The- yeah, so they're, they're, they're the Wudabi and they, they live in a huge um, strip called the, the Sali, Sali. And um, they, they, um, they're nomads. But once a year for seven days, um, at a date which is decided very shortly before the time and in a place which is also decided shortly before the time they get to know about this and for a full week they have this beauty contest and the males for um, six days before and start preening and doing face paint and what's um, um, thought of as very beautiful are white teeth and white eyes so they 
you know, they put on black lipstick so their teeth are whiter and they roll their eyes and they've got this dancing ritual and the judges are women. And if they choose somebody and there's a mutual connection and they disappear into the bush overnight and if um, even if a woman is married, um, it is totally legit. It's not taboo for, for that guy to take the woman to be his wife if she wants to. She just mustn't be caught because then they can fight and somebody can die. But right. sort of they have this male beauty contest, and that, that is how they work. And there are two main tribes, and this this sort of um helps to create the the um the mingling of tribes so they don't become too intermarried. So um it's fascinating. And then, in, for instance, in in um Namibia, where I worked for three years, I was doing anesthetics in ICU. So obviously, I've often got to chew patients. So they're over Himba women, which are so beautiful. They're these long, slender women. Um, they rub their skins with with um, um, butter, butter and red ochre. They beautiful these elongated limbs, but they wear neck rings. I mean, you try and tube a, a himba woman with neck rings, you cannot. We used to do them fiber optically, and if they came in as an emergency, it's like really difficult. But but they wear the neck rings. And then in Central Africa, the in Ethiopia, they've got the Mercy tribe who have these huge um lip rings which you might have seen in in photographs yeah. it just it, it's fascinating the the varying cultures one sees across africa sorry i get transgressed but it's so interesting mm. just to know about all these things i just wanted to flag if anyone from north africa or egypt or that part of the world is listening i know you're part of africa but we might try and group your part of the world with our middle eastern um conversation with uh, pega dedari because I know that um, some of the Middle Eastern um, doctors from uh, Lebanon and Dubai do teach um, the doctors in North Africa because, of course, culturally um, and ethnically, they are sort of more related. So we're not ignoring you. We do know you're from Africa, mm. but um, we might talk about North yeah. Africa in another um, podcast. Zolta, I was wondering, great. Was wondering yes. who are the role models that young Black Africans are aspiring to look like? I know that like in Australia and uh, the United States, we look up people like the Kardashians and and so on, you know, and and um, sort of reality TV a lot of a little a lot, but um, who were sort of leading the charge in terms of influence and the role model, the role models that these people are looking up to in terms of how they want to look. Well, there's several. One beautiful one is um, Bunang Muteba, who is a TV personality. She's now got her own MCC, you know, she's making her own wine, very well spoken internationally, the most beautiful voice. Um, there's um, Zozabini Tunzi, who was our Miss South Africa last year, who actually be, was Miss Universe last year. Um, so there are many. And I think many actually just um, admire Lupita Nyong'o. She's actually Mexican-Kenyan, which shows you how things change. Lupita, who's the face of Lancome, actually, she was born in Mexico, but grew up in Kenya. She calls herself a Mexican-Kenyan, if you want to you know, think of how the world is intermingling. Alec Weck. So there's so many. And many of them were this proudly African theme and um, Afro-natural beauty, where they're going with their with their um, natural hair, is actually um, is is very much a trend currently. They are this term proudly African is seen in more, and I love that. And what's the male to female sort of equality like across the various territories that you've worked in or treated in? Are women now sort of, um, you know, in, in modern jobs and, and sort of, you know, is femininity and empowerment of, of women sort of um, as strong as, as it is here in, in other countries? Absolutely. Still not, still not um, equal enough, I would say, but 
there's there's a huge drive for that. And and how does that impact on things like fashion, beauty, um, all the rest of it? I think greatly. I mean, fashion and beauty run hand in hand. So um, they're um, the most beautiful statuesque um, models. They, there's a huge drive um, towards, you know, multiculturalism in mm. our country, I think across the whole world. Mm. In terms of what's considered classically beautiful, um, if you were to take the sort of almost, I don't, don't like to use the word stereotypical, but the stereotypical um universal acceptance for what would be considered beautiful for a black African woman and a black African man. Would you be able to sort of break that down for us in sort of digestible, simple terms? Well, it's difficult because they're also different, even in my own country. Yes. But um, what did strike me is that um, I know up in Johannesburg where they've got more of the um, the, the group, the younger group, very, um, you know, financially strong younger group, they're going for refinement. They want noses. I know we don't see those. Um, down in Cape Town, not nearly as much. They want sort of noses and delicate things. Um, the majority of patients whom I see just want to look like they did when they were younger. So, um, and they age differently. The, their skins age well because they've got more, more melanocytes, more melanin to protect them, although they get dispigmentation. But the bone structure of the African face in general is different. And this is fascinating because they've got the orbits in a Caucasian patient um, person which are more sort of avatar shaped. In um, Asians, they are more oval shaped and the African skull has got a more rectangular orbit. So the, the um, horizontal component is narrower. So it's more, it's, it's more square. And this is fascinating. They've got, um, you know, maxillary hyperplasia, submental prognathism. But for, for years, it's actually um, fooled me because in a Caucasian face, even the, the, the Cape Malay and Cape Colored faces, by using small volumes on the lateral cheeks, you can change their face, you can stop lateral scleral show. If you use those same volumes in African, on an African skull, it does nothing. You need larger volumes. And um, for years, I was caught out because often they've got these seemingly beautiful, robust cheekbones, and you don't think you need to address the... Um, the mid face, but they get scleral show very early because they've got a rounded lateral canthus. And I've learned eating them timelessly despite seemingly robust cheekbones by Caucasian standards. If you start treating them early enough, you stop the scleral show and you stop a lot of the sagginess, which they sort of seem to get suddenly and um, in a pronounced way as they get older. The tissues are heavier. They're, they've got more collagen. They've got different fibroblasts. They've, they've got heavier tissues structurally, histologically. So by, by treating timelessly in the correct manner, one can do a lot to stop the aging process. Um, lips, I know, are very popular in Australia. Um, not so much here, but the lips also age differently because in the paler skin types, Caucasian, you get righties above the lip. Mm -hmm. And in the African faces, they get little lines on the lip itself, on the vermilion. And the lip proportions obviously are totally different in, in the African skull and face, you know, compared to the Caucasians. So it's fascinating and one must understand these minutiae um, before one can treat and in order to um, advise the patients um, wisely. So I think there's a huge educational task ahead of physicians in this country. This is the other thing. In our country, only physicians are supposed to be injecting. I know it's different in many parts of the world. Only doctors may inject by law in our country. Um, 
dentists are allowed by law to do only fillers in the perioral region. I'm not saying this always gets done. They are not allowed to inject Botox. Once again, it doesn't get done. And therapists and nurses are not allowed to do injectables in this country. In this country, you you must be a physician to be able to um, do injectables. David was under the impression that you had to be the age of 21 or above to have injectables in South Africa. Is that true? No. Oh, I read no. that on a website. It must have been dodgy. No. So 18, like everywhere else in the world. Just, well, I'm assuming everywhere else in the world will find out, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's define injectables. I mean, I've got patients with hyperhidrosis of the um, palms and soles, which I start treating at fourteen, fifteen. So define injectables. I suppose it's a it's a big um ethical, it's an ethical thing. Yeah. But um, although we're seeing numerous patients now in their twenties coming for injectable treating, you know, treatments, um, um, we aren't often um well, I don't in my practice often see you know the under under twenties for aesthetic injectables. Although I do a great deal of hyperhidrosis. Yeah, interesting. Now, it's probably worth highlighting that in there's only maybe 10 that I can think of or, or that I've researched countries in Africa where you can actually get injectables easily. The countries that I came across were South Africa, Nigeria, Namibia, Botswana, Morocco, I think Tunisia, Egypt. There might be one or two more, but it, it, am I right in saying that it's not sort of ubiquitous across the whole continent? No. Malawi too. I know the the UCT um, University of Cape Town um, registered. I was treating at some stage. Some of them go, went back to, back to Malawi too. So it is it is being done in Botswana and Malawi too. Yeah, but but it is um, it is not that well known in South Africa. There are um, well under one thousand injectors. Wow, for our patient population. That, that's all. Young. That's and all. Sort of specialty then. Let's move to South Africa. I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, you were mentioning before that. Um, it isn't only the the structural um, the structures of the face that are different. You also mentioned that there were differences in collagen and and tissue. Can you expand on that a little bit more? And I guess how that, and I guess we're sort of leading into more specific injectable questions. But I guess just to sort of preface it, how that sort of impacts the aging process and how you go about treatment, when intervention may start, and just I guess the general approach. Yeah. Well, starting with the skin. Um, the African face traditionally they have larger fibroblasts and they've got more collagen, although the bundles are thinner. They've got more mast cells. They have more um, melanosomes, not more melanocytes, but more melanosomes, and they get broken down more slowly than in the Caucasian skin. So it's logically, structurally, their um, tyrosinase is more active. There are just discrete differences. It is how it is, and that is why they're more prone to hyperpigmentation. You know, although um, a 27-gauge needle or smaller is not supposed to really um, increase your chance of post-inflammatory pigmentation, there are actually studies done to prove that. Mm. If a patient is prone to pigmentation, one can always do a test spot. And the factors that have been cited as, you know, predisposing to hyperpigmentation would actually be multiple puncture sites, which is obvious. Also, fast injection speed mm. and um, any procedure that would induce erythema. Um, and this is very important, obviously, for the lasers. In, in a dark-skinned patients aren't the ideal candidate for hair laser. You must select them very carefully. In broadband light, neither. You must select them very carefully. Use longer pulse durations and cool them properly. And you know, make sure that you um, know what you're doing. We, our clinic is a kind of a specialist center. We see many complications induced elsewhere. And then, obviously, the black skin genetically they're different. They are more prone to keloids. 
18 to 33 times more prone to keloids, although that isn't a contraindication to injectables. Once again, if you're in any doubt, just do a test spot. Mm. But one normally takes just a good history and examine the patient properly. Would that be potentially due to their collagen, having more collagen, more active collagen producing capabilities within their skin, which might lead to that keloid scarring? Or is that just something completely different? No, they've got specific genes that have been identified. Right. The, the, the proliferation of the fibroblast, it, it, they've got genes identified for that. I've just thought of the question talking about needles, and I wasn't sort of planning on asking this, but it's interesting. Um, with different cultures, they perceive pain in different ways. And I, I guess, and I don't want to stereotype again, but I know many of my Mediterranean, Mediterranean patients you know, they can get a little bit sort of um, animated when, when needles come out. And just it's this cultural thing. What are, what are African patients like? Are they quite stoical, quite, you know, um, you know, good with pain? Or, or are they sort of more emotional? Like, how would you describe that sort of aspect of things? I know it's a bit of a weird question. Yeah, I wouldn't say that sort of differences have struck me. I mean, I've, in general, I've, I perceive the patients as very calm and compliant. I always believe, never mind what your underlying anxieties are. Maybe the very anxious ones don't get one. But if you explain well, mm -hmm. feel that they trust you, um, it normally isn't a problem. They've actually proven that, that that sort of trust in a physician has been proven to mitigate the pain perception. Yeah. So I, I haven't been I, – I don't struggle with histrionic patients. Um, I know um, when I was working in Namibia, yeah. there are some of those um, – um, ethnic groups that, that are known for um, being histrionic. I, I know when doing casualties in the middle of the night, you often used to come, you know, to a with a whole extended family because, you know, somebody's fainted. And there's a lot, there was, um, there were interesting situations um, there. But I must say in my patient population, I find them um, no different to any other. Yeah, I can joke about this. David and I have both got Jewish mothers, so... Um, <laughs> You know, culturally, some of these things are really quite apparent. Just, you yeah. know, the smallest thing is like blown up into a massive drama. So. Yeah. My mum's up for this, right? <laughs> Sorry, mum. <laughs> How popular are cosmetic injectables um, in South Africa? And I, I guess in terms of, you know, you're saying that it's becoming more of your, your, your sort of mix of patients. It's becoming more and more popular. But I guess if you were to compare it to, you know, I guess, you know, you speak to colleagues like Jake here in Australia and, and all around the world. Where do you think South Africa is tracking in terms of its popularity and the, the desire for people to undergo these treatments? Well, a lot less. As right. I was saying, there's, um, there are, there's a huge paucity of data, but um, it is said that the awareness is 61% and that the conversion to the, that some, the people who come for advice of 35%, the conversion is only 25%. Mm. But it's also known that Africa, I, I read an interesting um, publication recently on cosmetics, um, um, a marketing study in the whole of Africa. And they were saying that there's a, um, a huge um, development in social media, in IT, and that Africa as a continent is actually um, leapfrogging, it's sort of leapfrogging um, um, the the um, the developed market markets, so um, I think we will see a huge uptick in times to come. And I know many of the companies are um, wanting um, quite a large um, market growth in in the year to come. Um, I don't know whether this um, was decided before the second um, COVID wave. One wouldn't know, but yeah. there is the expectation of um, of huge growth. Well, you might find that there's going to be a lag in terms of people 
being exposed to these treatments and understanding how they work and the whole education process. Because we know here in Australia, I remember seeing studies from Allegan talking about the time delay from someone actually knowing about these treatments and researching them and thinking about it. And then all of a sudden people go, okay, yeah, cool. I'd like to undergo these treatments now. So you're probably at that stage where maybe we were 10 years ago when people were just starting to hear about these treatments. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, there seems to be this unquenchable, 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 unquenchable (laughs) desire um, for these treatments. And maybe that's the same trajectory that you're on there. It's just taking time for that education process to sort of filter through. Yeah. I do think that time with telescope because of, of um, the internet, because of people no. are, you know, as you're saying, the, 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 the underdeveloped third world nations, as in us, with a very um, disrespected fair market value for companies all over the world. I, um, I think they're saying that we are now leapfrogging more developed nations. So I think there's going to be um, a huge increase in exponential awareness um, probably within the next few years. As older, my sort of average patient, I guess, is sort of between 35 and 45, white, female, you know, quite cautious, doesn't want to look fake, scared of what her friends and husband might say. What, what's your average uh, white patient and, and black patient who comes to see you? I would think very much the same. We've got a clinic, you know, so um, we see a huge amount of acne. So, you know, um, acne, melasma, rosacea, clinical things. So we, we see a huge spectrum of patients. I would say the ones for injectables would be um, late 20s to 40s probably, and then also um, quite a large um, proportion of patients um, in their 50s. Mm-hmm. We've got a lot of sun damage, um, a huge amount of skin quality treatments, um, anti-sagging treatments. So, um, yeah, I would say quite a wide spectrum, actually, okay. 30 to 50. And your ratio of women to men, I'm guessing it's still mainly women. <laughs> Yeah, mainly women. What's it here in Australia? Is it still about 90-10, roughly? Yeah, yeah, I would guess mine is about 90-10 and, yeah. and your average injectable would be similar. Mm. Yeah. Um, are injectables, I think you sort of alluded it to already, but are they still mainly for the rich and, and not necessarily famous, but the well-to-do? Because I don't know how big the middle class is in, in Africa and South Africa and, and some of the other countries, whereas obviously countries like China and India, they've got massive middle classes now. So these, these treatments are much more popular. But who is coming to your clinics and, and clinics around Africa? Well, I think the middle class and upper class. Mm-hmm. It's been amazing actually now through COVID to see which ones have been coming back. They will... Um, skimp on clothes and on other things i've been so touched by the huge difference our treatments make to quality of life it's been deeply meaningful it's one of the things i remember of this year is, is the meaning the quality of life that our treatments add to patients lives and then the middle class have actually um they've skimped and they've saved to be able to do the injectable treatments botox i mean this year i've been doing mainly um botox they were large um, segments of time when I was not doing fillers for various safety reasons. Yeah. And obviously you're a, a dermatologist, but are there any chain clinics or, or, or sort of, you know, more sort of high street sort of availability of injectables or is it just sort of boutique clinics with, with um, specialists like yourself? There are one or two. Yeah. Sorry, you just went. Are, but they, 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 they're in the minority. 
Okay, so then, then it's not it's not that it's not that the not the sophisticated um kind of um generally available market you have in Australia. I mean, remember we're talking about under seven hundred people injecting for our country, and of those, um, which I didn't say, forty percent do only Botox. Oh wow, only Botox. How, so, how does that work as a as a business? <laughs> I couldn't say it is how it is. Right, interesting. And what do you think is driving that? Is that just an education thing? Is it people? Yes. starting off with toxins or Botox before they feel more comfortable moving into fillers or is it maybe people's faces don't need as much filling as we do over here or maybe we're just obsessed to the point of stupidity? I don't know. <laughs> well, I think um, education is one thing. Awareness is one thing. Um, I must say there's a great drive for a natural look. They, The first thing they will say when they come in is, I don't want to look like um, Angelina Jolie. They, they want um, a natural look. So. Um, yeah, but I would think education probably is the biggest barrier, entry barrier mm. to that market. It's um, interesting when you compare that to, say, like Europe, where people tend to be more filler-prone than they are toxin-prone, as far as I'm aware, that it's a lot more… Russia. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, did, a, I did something for, for, for Russia a while ago, and there, and they are afraid of Botox, but they do it. It's, really? it's very interesting how, um, yeah, how, how conceptually it differs. Well, obviously, you've got um, problems in places like the UK where filler is not a prescription drug. It's a device. And so anyone can use it. And so therefore, you know, you've got beauticians and, and other people sort of, you know, having a go, um, whereas Botox and, and toxins are prescribable. And so they're just not as available for, for you know, people to just mm. inject willy-nilly, thank God. How about things... Yeah. Um, like the collagen stimulators, so like your Sculptra, your Radius, things like that. Is that, is that are they sort of dabbling in those things as well, or are you still sort of you know very much in the the sort of the toxin and mo moving into filler? I can tell you, um, we did have we had um what was called Newful Sculptra years ago. You know, it was came on the market for HIV um patients, but it got um a bad name in our country because there were um. The company wasn't in our country. There were some complications and there wasn't backup for the plastic surgeon involved. And it became a court case. So it is not that widely used the, the, in in this country. Yeah, it's really sad. In radius is here. Oh, okay. But not not nearly to the same extent as um, the HIV fillers. Yeah, because, you know, in South Africa, you're lots of HIV victims. And so treatments like that would be presumably really really mm. useful yeah although well i treat a lot of them they, they, they do wonderfully with 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 hf fillers and they last well mm. so um i've got quite a cohort of um those in we, my clinic we seem to be getting a resurgence now in popularity of the of the collagen stimulators now they've been around for a long time here but similar to the story that you that you sort of spoke about as older is you know we had some some cases that went pretty badly in Australia. And I think it was people just not really understanding how to inject it correctly using incorrect technique. And then you know how it goes. You want to need a couple of horror stories and then these things spread like wildfire and then all of a sudden everyone's scared of them. But they seem to be making a resurgence here in Australia in terms of popularity, people understanding that it's a slow burn, you know, and understanding where those treatments fit amongst your toxins and your fillers. They've got a different role to play. Yeah. I mean, I think in Australia, obviously it's quite a, you know, an established market now and we're quite advanced uh, seemingly compared to some countries and so most of our patients are routinely doing toxin they're routinely doing filler and they're looking for you know the next best thing which is now obviously skin 
collagen threads have become super popular. We've obviously done a podcast with them um, on Vogue Skin about yeah. the PDO threads. I'm so, actually I'm booked in for a few hundred threads in you know, about all two weeks. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll be looking 15 when we do the next podcast. The, uh, <laughs> Your life will be hanging by a thread, David. <laughs> oh, well done. Hold on. I've got a sound effect for that now. Hold on a second. Hold on. Oh, there you did go. you hear that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's for David's once a year joke that actually is quite funny. <laughs> I've also got an interesting question about the, the market in general. What, what's the what? Well, what are the toxin brands available in in Africa, or at least in South Africa? And what do you think is sort of the the dominant brand, and and so on? Well, in toxins in South Africa, toxin disport, with Botox being the dominant one. Okay, sorry, so you just lost you. So you said there's Botox and disport. There's no other Botox brand. and disport. We're waiting for the rest. Yeah. So those are the two ones here. Vials are available because I know in some countries it's just 50 or just 100. Some in countries there's 200 for Botox. What, what, what do you routinely buy? We've got the, the hundreds I routinely buy, but one does get 50s. Okay. And I'm, I need to get my phone out to do some conversions here, but how much does it cost you to, to well, let's talk about patients actually. I'll ask about what you have to spend, but what does a patient typically have to spend on? On a, on a treatment, do they buy in units or do they buy in areas or how does it all work over there? That differs widely. So it's different, you know, difficult to, to generalize. Some people charge by areas, some people charge by units. Mm. So there, there's no fixed way of doing. And most people, when they do hyperhidrosis, many, many more units, um, there's sort of, it, it's accepted there's a different kind of rate for that. Yeah, of course. So how much would, you know, I know everyone's different, but an average injector, say, of, of your kind of skill level be charging per unit of Botox in RAND? The units in ZAR, um, it varies between, say, 7,500 and 100 RAND per, per unit. Okay, I'm going to call that 80 RAND. So that's $7.15 Australian. Mm-hmm. Or if you're in America, $5.48. I think that's pretty pretty good mm-hmm. pretty good going yeah. Yeah. people laugh at us they tell us that we under market it's, it's actually cheaper for patients to fly in and have a luxury holiday and have the treatments done here and fly back to mm-hmm. europe many of my patients do than it is to um, have it done in europe for instance yeah. I, yeah. I know that 100 I, I was doing some conversions with like earlier today and yeah lips look about the same four or five hundred dollars roughly for a mil of australian dollars converted roughly is what i was looking at so it looked it looked fairly okay. comparable it probably varies depending on where you're going. Yeah. I explained to them. And then um, although we normally, when they phone in, we, we quote um, um, per area as a range. It will be between this and this. Mm. But when I write, this is just me, when I write on my folder, I will write the number of units. And then my units will get multiplied by what, you know, um, what we're charging per unit. Some, and if I, if I use less, um, the price will be lower. Okay. Also, I routinely see my patients at two weeks for, for a check, routinely, um, and that's totally no charge. So for instance, if you know it's a patient who will often have a bit of a puller, you would want to tweak. If you see after the, after the first comeback that they normally need a bit more, then you will just add those four units to your primary treatment so, so you, don't, you don't undercut yourself all the time. So when you've got a, a first-time patient coming in who's looking to undergo injectable treatments, um, I'd like to be interested to to understand your your sort of consultation process, how you are assessing your patient's faces. You know, you mentioned you've got, you know, differences between the Caucasian and African and facial structures. So how are you 
sort of devising your plan? Are you looking at photos of them when they were younger? Because you mentioned that a lot of them are looking to sort of restore a more youthful look. How are you sort of planning? And maybe Jake can sort of add to this as well. How are you sort of going about your treatment plan and the consultation process? When it comes to fillers, I never will fill a patient to do a filler treatment on the day that I consult them. Mm-hmm. They will get a pre-consult. Um, I will routinely do Botox on the first day they come. So I am. Um, we have, um, you know, very good clinical photographs taken. Woodrow's been to our clinic. We've got Woodrow's system set up. Um, I will often look. I will. Yeah, I will often look at um, their youth photos, make sure that they've got a realistic expectation. So I just I spend time with them, and as far as the toxins go, I explain to them treating the face with toxins for me is like choreographing a dance of the muscles. I mean, some um, elevate, some depress, the stronger one wins, and you can see exactly what's working. They are all anatomy whisperers because if a muscle is contracting, the um, the crease will fall perpendicular to, to the direction of muscle action. So it's fascinating. And if you give them a mirror and tell them, look, and I'll often trace out the, the course of the muscles, you know, when they, um, and get them involved because it excites me. The, the, the beautiful variations, you know that I, was editor of this anatomy book, which was published earlier this year. And it was two years of hard work and photographing clinically any possible um, anatomical variant you could find. So I, I really do get excited about anatomy and I try and explain this and show this to the patients and really educate them as I go along and then work out a plan with, you know, um, with them in conjunction. I must say, in general, my patients are extremely trusting. Um, and, and, and it gives me joy to work out a one-year plan for them to tell them, well, this is what you need. It is what you need. And then to plan it in steps every three to four months. And um, I must say, I've got amazing um, patients, which yeah, give me a lot of joy in what I do. I actually, I wasn't joking. I think you did go into this in a lot more detail in your episode with us. And, you know, it's fascinating to learn about how different people consult, whether they use photos or not. And, you know, I know your big thing is on trust and empathy, which was what our episode was on. So, I think, you know, once you get a patient who trusts you and, and exactly what you said, you, you have so much more freedom as an injector to actually do what's needed rather than what you're told to do. Um, yeah. yeah. And I must say, you know, I often laugh, but I spend a large portion of my day talking people out of things. As does my colleague, who does the because often they will come with an idea or a, a want that they really don't need. So I'm totally upfront. Um, I spend a large part of my day talking people out of things, and that also builds trust if 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 it's authentic trust. Or um, also, um, I do the injectables. My colleague does the um, energy-based devices, and um, this was the whole idea of our center: uncompromising excellence. So often, I will call him in to build talk, and I might tell the patient, "You know, your skin quality needs treatment before we start doing." Um, before we start doing contours and, and sort of creases. So I would advise, we will together we will work out a plan that's best for the patient. And they appreciate um, that and we've sort of become known as that. Yeah, that's great. You know, a patient which really puts their um, needs first. Now I'm going to wheel you back to the juicy injectable question. So we're going to get into fillers. <laughs> so which brands are available in South Africa and the, and the wider countries in Africa? Well, the, the, the big players are basically Allegan, um, Gelderma mm-hmm. are here, and then Teoseal, which is marketed by MGenom, Teoseal. Those are the three big ones. And then also um, Radius is here too, but doesn't have, I think, such a big market share. Yeah, interesting. And again, let's go back to pricing. So if you had a, I don't know, one mil of Voluma or one mil of Restylane Lift, 
um, or a, a Tioxane brand, what would they be costing, do you think, in rand? So one one mil of Voluma is around about 1,800 rand um, for purchase. I mean, I think the people have got different purchasing schemes, probably depending on how much they would um, they would buy. But about 1,800 for Voluma, and I know the Restland Lift is around about I think one five, mm-hmm. and Tioxane about one three, slightly slightly less. No, that's what we that's our yes. purchase price. You we shouldn't be um, selling our procedures by mil. That means that somebody with overly injected lips should pay a lot more than somebody whose lips have been injected properly. Yeah. So um, I, 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 I very strongly believe, and that's what I teach too. We shouldn't be marketing ourselves. I never tell patients we're using this this much. You know, obviously you need to factor it into your quote, but um, I don't think we should be marketing. We shouldn't demean ourselves by selling um, mm. volumes of product. It's well, about like the it. job and how long it lasts, and your expertise in the area you're injecting. So I, I, I feel quite strongly about that. Mm. No, I, I agree as an injector, you know, you, you don't want to be selling one, two or, or three. Like it doesn't really, you know, it depends what the face needs. It could be 10 or 12. Mm. You pay for a result, don't you? Yeah. yeah. I think in Australia, things tend to be, well, our cost price tends to be more. Mm. Well, we're a, a smaller country, smaller population, even though our market penetration is probably quite high. We're, you know, high uptake of these treatments, but mm. um I think as well, we've probably got ourselves to blame, you know, and I, I agree with Isolde, you know, we've sort of commoditized these treatments where people will know how, you know, they want to come in for X amount of units or this many meals. And mm. it sort of undermines in some ways the actual process itself, which is everyone's face is different. Everyone's requirements are different. Every treatment should be tailored and boutique for that patient. So when you yeah. start getting into comparing units and meals, you sort of, you're taking away in some ways, the secret source of what you guys do, which is to, live, to, de- to deliver a result and paying for an outcome rather than trying to sort of bargain and, and sort of, you know, wheel yeah. and deal on units and mills. And we've sort of, we've, we've done that to ourselves in Australia, yeah. I think. Well, I guess yeah. one of the reasons behind uh, asking some of these questions, when we had Subio on, yeah. he was saying that in the States, the, the cost price, let alone the, the sell price of, of a filler, is so prohibitive that you know, most even skilled injectors are limited to maximum four mils. They wouldn't dream of, you know, doing you know, what you might term a liquid facelift. It's just too uh, price prohibitive. Mm-hmm. And so that... I think in China too, huh? Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, so, and I've actually got a patient uh, who used to live in Hong Kong, similar sort of thing. So there does come a point where price is relevant, but of course, from a consulting medical specialty perspective it, it's not it's actually what your face needs and and price you know shouldn't really determine you know what you tell your patient but um What's yeah, compromise yeah. treatment yeah yeah absolutely so it, i mean it's, it's the product it's the time you use it's your expertise so it, it's it's multifactorial but i can tell you like in our clinic depending on what they need i mean it'll be between five and fifteen thousand rand for a treatment yeah depending on what they need and how long you spend and which products you use so it's Dollars Australian or three hundred forty-two dollars US. Mm-hmm. So that's it's pretty comparable. Yeah, I think that's pretty comparable to here, which is good to know. <laughs> Maybe yeah. I won't move to South Africa now. <laughs> we, Australia, <laughs> needs you. Australia needs you here. Yeah. What about um, things like uh, Kybella or Belkyra, mm-hmm. as we call it in Australia? The fat dissolving injections that are available. You don't have those. We don't have it. No. We don't have it yet. Shame, I promised end of last year, but yeah, it's it's the um, the MCC is it's laborious, so we don't have that yet. Oh, is that your? We're going to get the yeah. body. 
Medical Control Council. Mm. Right. Um, we sort of alluded to it a little earlier in the podcast, which was about the threads. Um, do you guys have access to them in in where in South Africa? And you sort of you patients seeing the value in them. And um, I guess if you do, like, I guess there's a bit of a craze here in Australia at the moment with the PDO threads, which is the ones that a lot of registered nurses um, can do. And people are getting like you know 50, 100, 200 threads in, in a session, which are, are generally used to cause a little bit of a lift, but major, mainly collagen stimulation. What's the this idea? Yeah, we, we do we do have them. We do we do have them. I cannot say it's a craze. There aren't those many people doing them yet. There are very few specialists doing them actually. Yeah. The um Genop have one. Do you know where they're from? Just... You mean what country? Yeah, which country? I actually, um I actually don't. I think they're the French ones. Let me just um Interesting. French. Yeah. It's okay. I had a question. It's okay. That's all right. We can we can Google this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I don't do them as you will deduce. Um, I got the name of the the the, the Linux threads, most popular ones. Mm-hmm. And the they're, they're lifting threads or the short mono threads. Yeah, they they're lifting threads. Okay, fair enough. But they they, are, they aren't they aren't that um that common here. I was going to say with the seven hundred injectors nationally, you know, it's just going to take a long time. Even even here, I think there, there are injectors mm-hmm. of myself who. Up until recently, have, have sat on the fence, not not quite sure if if it's for them or or if they see the benefit in in training and maybe increasing their risk day to day. So it, it does seem to be a more of a polarizing type of treatment, whereas you know injecting is where it's at. I think. Mm. Well, I think as as sort of time goes on, you're learning where these different treatment um, modalities fit into your repertoire. And how they to be yeah. used. I think when you start comparing them to, say, a filler where it's an instant result, mm. maybe a little bit more predictable. Yeah. It's sort of a, you know, it's very tangible immediately. Whereas a lot of these other treatments, you can't treat them the same way. You have to have the realistic expectation for what result they're yeah. going to deliver. You know, by having these treatments, which aren't going to maybe give you the automatic wow in terms of a, a, shape, a change of shape in the face or a, an accentuation which is laying the foundation to improve quality of skin so that you can go back in later and, and perform those wow treatments. The, the well. name that was, yeah. yeah. The name that was evading me is it's a silhouette one, silhouette soft, oh, the yeah. ones that Jenna Healthcare, silhouette, silhouette threads are the ones we have, um, the, the more well-known ones here. Yeah, okay, perfect. And what about other devices in aesthetic clinics like cool sculpting? I know you guys have that. Um, yeah. What about um, you know, therapy? All therapy, okay, interesting. What about we do um, radio frequency, um, all the um broadband light ones, the fractional lasers, um, these are um quite readily available here. I think. Have you heard of MSculpt? What is MSculpt? <laughs> it, it's a it's a body contouring device. Um, so that uses high, get this right, high fem. So, uh, basically, very strong magnets to um stimulate the muscle of you know, the abdomen is, is the most known treatment for it but you can do it on the triceps and, and um, a few other areas but it's an amazing treatment um it's kind of different to, to some mm. of the other technologies that were available okay. up until recently yeah we do have it i've just googled that in johannesburg and cape town so another uh, one for africa although our clinic doesn't i got a question about um the training and i guess the standard of injecting because obviously you see a lot of people you're training yourself um, where I don't want you to sort of judge your colleagues and sort of 
put yourself in hot water. But do, do you think that the, the quality is generally high or do you think that it's still in its infancy and there's, there's a lot to learn? How would you describe the, the skill of the injecting in Africa? Yeah, it's um, difficult to say. I mean, I can't speak for everybody. I know I teach the registrars, the dermatologists, and there are very few who are injecting. So I take them from scratch and I make sure that they can fly by the time they, they leave. I've also got a, um, the Hyatt Academy, which is an education academy where I treat both general practitioners um, and specialists. So um, I really try and sort of teach the best I, I can. Um, sometimes I'm amazed what they don't know, even if they say they've been injecting for years. But I think that is sort of um, universal. So it's it's difficult to say. Yeah. Luckily, they're all um, doctors who have, hopefully have some code of ethics. So um, and have got a basic way of thinking, which is fortuitous. Mm. And where do you think things are sort of moving within the next couple of years in your industry? Do you see it just, you know, as we sort of alluded to, exploding? Do you think it's going to be more of a slow, linear growth or are you sort of buckling up for, you know, some crazy years ahead as things become more popular? It's an interesting and a loaded question. It's going <laughs> to depend a lot on what COVID does with our economy. Yeah. Yeah, it's the Because we part. are in a fragile space. So um, we've, we've got um, your privileged where you are but we are um, more vulnerable in in many ways so i think a lot remains to be seen what about um do you have any sort of colleges of of injectors or sort of bodies where, where you all sort of align and discuss um you know education or do you have a, a a local conference that um maybe one day we could come to or you know how do you guys communicate and and sort of grow as a as a unit together well, um, I think probably the biggest um, company-driven um, project, we've got a um, elegant AMI, which is the, the strongest one. All the companies sort of um, organize things for their own injectors. I've um, tried to, ever since I was president of our society, surgical society a few years ago, I've tried to always do things that, that um, are above company, so um, which is technique and safety and analysis-based, not just product-based. So I see people from all walks of life and people who've been to me for training sort of remain in the circle. And when I do um, through the university, we've got a um, aesthetic review meeting, which we um, try and do um, once a term when it's not COVID. And then we also, in, you know, basically invite a large group of, of people. So I've been trying to educate personally over a um, broader base, but there's no college. The the, the um, college of medicine in this country, um, they um, haven't been, um, embracing aesthetic medicine in any huge way. Um, I know there's a, a um, person up in Pretoria who's got her own, who, you know, basically trains for the American Academy of Aesthetic in Injectables. So people are sort of doing their own things. There isn't one big all-encompassing body as it would be nice to have. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Now, we would be... A lot of scope for growth, exciting yeah. growth opportunities. Yeah. Now, we would be remiss if we didn't ask you some skin questions as we're talking to a leading dermatologist. <laughs> so what are the most common skin uh, conditions that you're seeing in both your, your white and your African patients? Well, on a daily basis, um, acne, rosacea, melasma, skin cancer, melanoma, melanoma, basal cell carcinomas. And then um, because my book is so, um, because I'm so booked up, basically, I mean, um, seven months, it's sort of with time, one starts seeing less of the acute things. So it's 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 basically the um the, the more long term things. Um, when we don't have 
COVID in our lives. The head of dermatology from Tiger Book Hospital has a clinic at our um, you know, center on a on a Tuesday. So it's 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 actually wonderful and fascinating. Then it's the more um general dermatology, medical dermatology um things we do. As part of my Hyde Academy, we also do um clinical dermatology for the non-dermatologists. Because I mean, with 150 in our country, I mean, we it's just just by no means enough to go around. So no. we try and teach them the differential diagnosis of the of the itchy patient, of the red scaly patient, how you how you you know, um, diagnose um, skin cancers, what you do. So we, um, I did the first one um, sort of about, um, well, in, in last year, and it was so well attended and there's such a hunger. So I would very much like to start doing that kind of thing more in a more virtual space too. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of scope and a lot of need for um, the general practitioners to start walking the road with us because, I mean, half of your practice is skin. Mm. And then whilst you're specializing or while you're studying medicine, you get five hours in total dedicated to skin so it's 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 not sufficient mm. so i i see um a lot of general dermatology too what are the um leading skincare products used in south africa and i guess the other surrounding countries and i guess i wanted to ask about um sunscreen as well and i guess some of the misconceptions around yeah. you know darker skin patients maybe not wearing sunscreen and you know whether they should whether they shouldn't could you elaborate on on those a little bit yeah. Well, we have good ones. We as antioxidant skinceuticals. Mm-hmm. We have um, for sunscreens. We've got um, Vichy, La Roche Posay, um, Eucerin, all kinds of esoteric blends. We've got we've got quite a good spread in our country, I think. And um, the the question that I just heard in the background was, you know, should the African skins be wearing sunscreens? Absolutely yes, because whereas we get sun damage, um, the darker skin types pigment. They get all kinds of pigmentary disturbances. And it's also been proven in the past few years that um, darker skin types um, pigment from visible light. Because fascinating, they've got the opsin. Do you know the story of the opsin-3 receptor? No. Or maybe Jake does. It's, it's, it's fascinating. It, it, it's been, our skins can see. Did you know this? In our, in our retinas, we've got the opsin receptors which perceive light. And in our melanocytes, we've got the opsin-3 receptor which perceives light, especially blue light. Which is why the darker skin types, which have more of them, tend to pigment from visible light. It's fascinating. And if you think of blue light, how much time we spend in front of our computer screens and devices, um, the, the blue light, we, we should be using protection against that. And those kind of skin types do better with, um, with, with sunscreens that have iron oxide in them too. Iron oxide is a better protection against um, visible light. Fascinating. Skinceuticals have a great one actually called Physical Fusion, which has um, iron oxide in a very um, elegant form. Brilliant. And am I right in saying that um, black skin types are more prone to melasma or, or do you see that in your own practice? Absolutely. Yes. Post-inflammatory pigmentation and also melasma. We've got a, a huge cohort of um, patients with melasma, which is a difficult thing. There's no real cure. It's it's the road you walk with them sun protection, antioxidants, um, bleaching mixes. There's a huge demand for, for, um, for, for melasma in our clinic and also in our country. Hmm. I've got a bit of a controversial question, but I was watching a YouTube um, video of a, an African beauty blogger yesterday, and she was saying that um, you know there are lots of unscrupulous um, sort of skincare bleaching type facilities around Africa for people wanting lighter skin. I guess, firstly, what is involved with that and, and how dangerous is that? And from a beauty perspective, which I guess is what, what we're trying to discuss, why do people want that? 
Well, um, first regarding the products, there is has been a lot of unscrupulous things going on. Um, in the past, um, hydroquinone was used in an unregulated way, up to 20%. And Africa is actually, South Africa, one of the few places in the world where um, exogenous ochronosis has been described, which mm. is irreversible. You get these dark, sooty papules with a very distinctive histology, which they always chuck you in, a, in, in, in your final exam. So um, the hydroquinone now is very strictly um, regulated in our country. It can only be given on we use it a lot. It's it's a wonderful um, agent if done correctly, but we seldom go beyond four or five percent. Personally, I only use that in winter because getting too much sun sun can give you irreversible darkening. So, but they also sold um and regulated the very very potent topical steroids, which you could get um at the station and the market. It, it's and that is still a problem. So I, I'm a founding member of the African Women's Dermatological Society, and we've had a huge drive in our country the past few years against um, um, skin lighters. These clinics, which have been using glutathione intravenously, which is not well proven. Okay, so there, you, there is a huge market somehow for that. What what was it used intravenously? Glutathione. Oh, glutathione. Which, which is a very powerful antioxidant. Yeah. Glutathione, yeah, whatever I've used, used, Wait, used no, the Afrikaans. That's a different that yeah. Win, yeah. <laughs> Afrikaans, girl at heart. Glutathione, yes. So there, there is a huge, um, 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 not very optimal market for those things. The reason why people want the paler skins, I mean, I wouldn't know. Here we can see social media use is, you know, pushing people towards a more um, yellow skin tone. And also, we know that a more homogeneous skin tone is is perceived as beautiful. You look younger. It looks more healthy. So there, there are many inherent um, reasons, I think, which are being driven obviously by um, by social media use in a in a specific way over the past few years. I don't know if you can answer this, but of course, in places like Sudan, where people are very dark skinned, presumably that may not be as popular. They do pigment. They do get melasma, which gives you an uneven skin tone. So even though they may not want a lighter skin tone, they still want an even skin tone. Yes. So I think that's pretty universal because they are more prone to to melasma, to pigmentation. And the darker skin types get a lot more um, dermatosis, papillosis, nigricans, more seborrheic, more acrocordins, which makes them look uneven in any case. So it, it's it's a huge need to have a more even skin tone. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, I don't know if this is generalization, this blogger was saying that generally African women don't tend to use too much makeup, sort of a more natural aesthetic is in. But of course, when it comes to hair and, and beauty, using weaves and wigs is, is, is sort of normal, whereas you know maybe in, in other countries that, that's not so normal. So what are your patients sort of tending to wear? Fashion-wise and, and makeup-wise, yeah. there's a, there, yeah, there's a huge movement there too. Um, there's a big move towards um, accepting your African hair. I mean, if you think of Alec Weck, she's got peppercorns. She's proudly African. So more and more are proudly wearing their peppercorn. Many of them are using braids, but if you braid too tightly, um, they get um, permanent um, traction alopecia, which we yeah. see a lot too. So there is there is sort of a movement away from that, and I think in Africa. It sounds as if they are more um, prone to embracing their natural look now than, for instance, in in USA. Regarding the makeup, um, I see um, most black women that I see are 
beautifully kept and are made up actually. And there's a far larger variety of foundations and makeup now than there used to be. So I, I wouldn't generalize that at all. I suppose it depends whether you're going to the rural parts or whether you come to the cities, but using face paint and ornamentation and decoration is, is very much part of the culture. So I don't think using makeup is frowned upon in any way. It's yeah. been very, very um, enlightening and educational. And I um, hope that our listeners have sort of appreciated the efforts that you know we've gone to getting yourself on. And thank you so much for your time. It's um, the first of many of these discussions. And um, yeah. what are your thoughts, Jake? <laughs> no, I thought, I thought it was great. I mean, there's so many things that we could go down, but we've you know, got to try and condense this into a palatable podcast, um, sort of under an hour and a half. Yeah. Um, but thanks again, Isolde. We really appreciate your time. It's always good to talk and, um, you know, hopefully we'll get to see you maybe, maybe in a year, who knows, at a conference, AMWC or somewhere else. Um, but stay safe. Well, that be uh, special. It will yeah. be very, very special. That, that glass of champagne yeah. will taste so much sweeter <laughs> when we can all be together. Yes. And I'm, uh, yeah. And I truly must commend you on doing this. It's it's such a special thing. Um, and I just feel so exhilarated that at last somebody is interested in um, African beauty, even the little slice of it that I can, you know, shed a lot. And there's so much more than I know or can say, but I love it that the topic is being broached and that it's being seen as different from Afro-American. Yeah. Because it is uniquely and beautifully different. I love it that you're doing this. And maybe just to add on to that, if you um, know of any other people that you think would be valuable for us to speak to on this topic in different regions of Africa that you, you could put us in touch with, that, that would be great. Um, and can you also remind our listeners how they get in contact with you if they'd wish to reach out, whether it be on social media or via your, via your email address or website? Instagram is Alda Heidenreich and my, um, my direct mail is just isolderheidenreich at gmail.com. Perfect. Well, thank you so much again. Enjoy the rest of your day. Stay safe and we'll catch up soon and we'll speak on WhatsApp. Thank you, David. Thank you, Jake. Thanks, Isolda. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.